If you're new, I'm Jamie. I'm also one of the pastors here. And uh, if you would point your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, we will pick up where we left off last Lord's Day. Exodus chapter 20, working our way through the Ten Commandments, and we have made our way to the Seventh Commandment. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And if you're using one of the black ones, you'll find Exodus 20 on page 61. Now, we're going to be reading a lot of Bible, so keep your Bibles close at hand. We're going to be turning to a lot of different places in the Bible. And as Pastor Brent mentioned earlier, um, the subject matter today is, I mean, the subject matter of the Seventh Commandment is um, concerning some adult themes. And so if you haven't already, and uh, your kids are always welcome to be in the service with us at any time, but if you're um, concerned about these kinds of things and little ears, uh, please, uh, you're welcome to take them back to the, to the gymnasium. I'm going to read the passage, Exodus 21 to 17, and pray for the Lord's help on our time together. And then we'll spend the next 45 minutes or so unpacking the seventh commandment. So let's begin by reading Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything. That is your neighbor's. Would you pray with me? 
Father, who are we to ask anything of you? Needy people. And we need you to come now. And give us your Holy Spirit that we may understand your word. And as we seek understanding concerning the seventh commandment, Lord, help us. Help us to know what your word says. Help us to know how to honor you by keeping your commandments. For Jesus, you said, it is those who love you who keep your commandments. And Lord, we love you. Help us now to keep your commandments. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, I should probably start by saying that God invented sex. It was his idea, and he called it good. And the Bible that you hold in your hands is the most sex-positive book ever written. And I say this at the beginning because it's an important thing for us to know as the seventh commandment deals with prohibitions, restrictions, which God has placed upon sex. Prohibitions and positivity are not mutually exclusive things. One man and one woman enjoying sexual intimacy in the covenant of marriage is a precious thing. And precious things are protected things. The Bible places prohibitions around sex for the same reason we place prohibitions around national monuments. These are precious, beautiful things which have value, and therefore they should be preserved, protected. This last summer, my family visited Saguaro National Park, and I was thankful for the prohibitions about dumping trash in a public place, in a beautiful public land. So restrictions that God places on sex preserve its goodness and preserve its purpose. God's commandments about sex protect it, and they protect those who engage in it. Here's the big idea this morning. It comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, where we read, let the marriage let marriage be held in honor among all, and keep the marriage bed undefiled, which is to say, keep the seventh commandment. So let marriage be held in honor among all, let the marriage bed be undefiled, and thereby keep the seventh commandment. We're going to adjust our outline just slightly, the same outline we've used previously for the other six commandments. We're going to adjust it just slightly due to the sensitivity of this topic. So we'll, we'll, we'll look at it like this. The seventh commandment explained, and then from there we'll move on to the second commandment forgiven, and then finally the, second command, or the seventh commandment fulfilled. The seventh commandment explained, forgiven and fulfilled. 
So let's take a moment and consider the seventh commandment itself. You shall not commit adultery. What is adultery? The definition is narrow, but the application is rather broad. So narrowly, adultery is a word that forbids a married person, man or woman, from engaging in any sexual activity with anyone who is not their spouse. So it's a prohibition against any married person from engaging in any sexual activity with any person other than their spouse. That's what it is narrowly. Broadly, though, it refers to any sexual impurity of heart, of speech, or of behavior, whether that person is married or not. And we'll see that along. But remember that the seventh commandment is one of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a summary of God's law. When God delivered His people out of slavery in Egypt, He brought them into, into the wilderness and He gave them His law. And He told them, this is how you are to live as my people. This, these laws, is how a free people live free. And these are rules. God's rules which are good. God's rules, which are for our good, they protect what is precious. And so the seventh commandment is imposed upon the people of God to protect the people of God. And this is because healthy marriages are the bedrock of healthy families, and healthy families are the bedrock of healthy society. When marriage breaks down, Families break down. And when families break down, society breaks down. And since adultery destroys families, God forbids it. But not only that, God punishes it. Deuteronomy chapter 22 says that adultery carries the death penalty in Israel. Let that sink in. How might that change daytime TV if that were still true today? Like days of our lives and locked up would be the same show. And so the question is then, why is God so grumpy about marital faithfulness? We don't don't some, sometimes just people fall out of love with one another and then move on? Well, to answer the question as to why God is so grumpy about marital faithfulness, we have to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. So if you have your Bible still open in front of you, go to Genesis chapter 2, which is on page 2 of the church Bible. Genesis chapter 2, and here we're going to see that marriage is between one man and one woman, and it is really important to the story that God is telling about Himself. Genesis chapter 2, up to this point, God has created the first man, Adam. He's created him from the dust of the earth. He's breathed life into him. And God put him in a garden, told him to work the garden, keep the garden. Now let's read from verse 18. On, verse 18. So Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. 
I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is the first marriage in the Bible. So a couple of observations about this. The aloneness of man is the one thing in creation which God said was not good. Everything else he called good, but this... This is not good. The aloneness of man. Now, you remember that man was made in the image of God, and God is relational. The Bible teaches that there is one God who has eternally existed as three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They know, they love, they glorify one another. And God is supremely joyful in the fellowship of the Godhead. As each person beholds and expresses his unsurpassed delight in the all-satisfying perfections of the Trinity. That's who God is. That's who God has been forever. Adam was made in the image of this God. And man is, like his creator, a relational being. So it was not good that man was alone. And so God made a helper fit for him. And you just read how God did it. And something I'd like to point out is how God didn't do it. He didn't tell Adam, get your notebook, young man, what do you want? Short, tall, blonde, brunette, athletic, dainty. What do you want? No, no. He told Adam, you go to sleep. I got this. She's not a drink at Starbucks. I make her and present her to you. So Adam slept and God worked. God made woman and brought her to man. God walked down the aisle, so to speak. The first wedding. Yesterday, I had the privilege of presiding over a wedding, beautiful outdoor wedding. And you guys have been to enough weddings to know the most, the kind of central part of the wedding is when the bride finally shows up, right? And she is presented and everyone stands and she walks the aisle. Well, that's what's happening here. God is presenting the woman to the man. 
As soon as Adam sees his wife, he spouts poetry. Did you notice the change in the formatting in your Bible in verse 23? It's because the Hebrew language switches to poetry. So men, make note here. Adam touches her heart before he touches her body. We come to verse 24, which is the basis of the marriage relationship. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In the marital union, what the old Bibles call leaving and cleaving, The husband and the wife give their bodies to one another in sexual intimacy, the one flesh union. Married sex is a giving. It is giving of oneself to one's spouse. This is the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Sexual intimacy in marriage is a giving. All sinful versions of sex are a taking, not a giving. Adultery is a taking. It is a taking of something you have no right to take. Something that is not yours to take. It is a stealing. And adultery is a destruction of this one flesh union created in marriage. It maintains the leaving, but it abandons the cleaving. It is the taking of pleasure for oneself without committing to the covenant responsibilities that are inherent in this one flesh union. And it is sin. And the seventh commandment forbids married persons from engaging in any sexual activity with anyone other than their spouse. But adultery is more than just the physical act of cheating. The Lord Jesus takes the application of the seventh commandment and moves it into the very heart of a person. So turn your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is on page 810 of the church Bible. I'd like to read two verses. Matthew five twenty-seven and 28. The Lord says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here we see the Lord Jesus expanding our understanding of the second, seventh commandment. Adultery doesn't apply to just married persons. It applies to everyone. 
all sex outside of the covenant of marriage is sin. It includes sex of unmarried persons, which the Bible calls fornication. But it also includes all sexual immorality. In the New Testament, the phrase sexual immorality is translated from one Greek word. It's sort of a junk drawer word, which just is, it includes everything that is not sex in the one flesh union of marriage. All sinful variations of sex fall under the category of sexual immorality. And notice that Jesus is saying here that evil, even the lustful intent toward these things is adultery. The breaking of the seventh commandment. Lust is a violation of the seventh commandment. And Jesus shows us that adultery is not just something we do with our physical bodies. It's also something we do with our minds, with our hearts. According to the Lord Jesus, anytime we scratch the itch of sexual fulfillment with anyone who is not our spouse, even in our minds, it is lust, it is adultery, and it breaks the seventh commandment. We were made for more than this, church. God created sex for more than this. Turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn forward, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, page 955. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, is going to help us fill in the blanks here as to why sexual immorality, as to why adultery is so wrong. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, quote unquote, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, quote unquote, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, quote-unquote. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God 
in your body. Notice the quotations in verses 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians, is he wrote this letter in response to a letter that the Corinthian church had written to him. And so he's quoting from them. So the things that are in quotations are the things that the Corinthians said to Paul. And they sound very 21st century, don't they? Right? Like, all things are lawful for me. It's just sex, Paul. It's just sex. It's sex between consenting adults. What's the big deal? It's not hurting anyone. Food is meant for the stomach. The stomach is meant for food. If God gave me these desires, why wouldn't he want me to fulfill them? Sounds very 21st century. And Paul says, sure. But God will destroy both. You were made for more than animalistic instincts. He says the body is not meant for sexual immorality. God made you, dear Corinthians, for more than this. God made sex for more than this. And notice how Paul appeals to each person in the Trinity when he calls the Corinthian church to flee from sexual sin. Verse 13, God, may, God the Father made you for more than this. Verse 15, your bodies have been united to Christ. And verse 19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This passage is showing us that it, it is not just sex. The sexual immorality is a different kind of sin. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and God's purpose for sex. Let's go to another place, Ephesians chapter 5. I told you we'd be bouncing around. Ephesians chapter 5, that's page 979. A couple of verses here to help us understand what it is that God created sex to be and why adultery is such, makes such a mess of it. This is Paul again quoting from Genesis chapter 2, and now he gives its full meaning. So this is verse 31 and 32. Paul draws from Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32. Here it is. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is the reason. It's not just sex. This is the reason that adultery is such a big deal. Because adultery destroys marriage, and marriage is central to the story that God is telling about Christ and His church. You see, a husband's selfless and sacrificial love for his wife is meant to be a picture of the way that Christ laid down His life for his church. In the way that Christ put his people before himself is the way that a husband puts his wife before himself. Her needs before his needs. Her desires before his own. In the way that Christ sanctifies his people, sets them aside, a godly husband sets his wife apart, gives her special treatment in the way that he speaks to her, in the way that he speaks of her. 
Like his Lord, he serves his wife. He encourages her. He builds her up with the word. He nourishes her. He cherishes her. And in the same way, the church defers to the selfless and sacrificial leadership of her Savior. Wives submit themselves to their husbands. She trusts fearlessly in her dear Savior by honoring and affirming her husband's leadership. By partnering with him and helping him carry out God's purposes for their life and for their marriage. She does this according to all the gifts that God has given to her. She speaks to him respectfully. She speaks of him respectfully. She carries herself with feminine dignity. Fitting of a daughter of the king. These complementary colors, the selfless, sacrificial leading of the husband, and the faith-filled, fearless submission of the wife paints a remarkable picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, a parable of the covenant commitment of Christ to the church. And this makes marriage far more important than two people in love making babies. Because of God's purpose for marriage, it's way more important than a man and a woman in love building a family. Outside of Scripture, the single best thing I've read about marriage was written by an unmarried German pastor in a wedding sermon that he never preached. Dietrich Bonhoeffer sat in a jail cell waiting trial for trying to take down Hitler when he wrote this to one happy couple. Marriage is more than your love for each other. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status. It is an office. And then Bonhoeffer wrote this. It is not your love which sustains the marriage, but your marriage which sustains the love. What Bonhoeffer is doing is he's reflecting upon Paul in Ephesians 5 and the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13. Marriage is more than a man and a woman in love making a family. It is an office. It is a function. It is a mini retelling of the gospel. The greater purpose of marriage is what drives commitment to marriage. It is not love that sustains the marriage. It is the marriage that sustains the love. Or as one author put it, staying married is not mostly about staying in love. If the Lord is pleased 
to give love and romance to you in your marriage, thank Him. But your commitment to the institution of your marriage is not dependent upon it. If God's purpose for marriage is to illustrate the self-denying benevolence of Christ, then individual fulfillment of the people in the marriage is not ultimately decisive in determining the fruitfulness of the marriage. There was a lot packed into that sentence. I'm going to say it again. If God's purpose for marriage is to illustrate the self-denying benevolence of Christ to His people, then the individual fulfillment of the people in the marriage is not ultimately decisive in determining the fruitfulness of the marriage. It means that some of the most Fruitful marriages are the ones where one spouse providentially is unable to contribute anything to the marriage, either because of sickness or something else. A husband faithful to his ailing wife is a glorious picture of Christ and the church. A wife faithful to a husband as he drifts off into dementia and can't lead her is a magnificent display of Christian steadfastness and patience. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Christ keeps his part of the covenant to his people, even when his people don't. And so can you see why now the seventh commandment is in the Ten Commandments? Can you see now why adultery is so damaging? Can you see why stepping out of marriage and joining oneself to another person is so ruinous of the picture that God created marriage to be? And so can you see now why in Scripture so often adultery and idolatry are linked? They commit the same sin for reasons of discontentment and selfishness one partner abandons the covenant for the sake of another the same thing we do in idolatry it's not just sex you were made for more marriage was made for more honor marriage keep the marriage bed undefiled so taking all of this that we've considered today, taking all of it, putting it together, considering everything that the Lord Jesus just told us about what adultery actually is, then don't we all have to accept the fact that we've all transgressed the seventh commandment. We've not lived the sexual purity that the Lord has expected of us. We've lusted, we've fornicated, we've committed adultery. 
And I think we should also acknowledge that when it comes to the seventh commandment, sexual sins, they carry with them an inordinate amount of guilt and shame. If Paul is right in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that sexual sin isn't like other kinds of sin, then it makes sense why sexual sin carries with it heavy shame. And so this is the why I changed the outline. I would like to spend a few minutes considering how the seventh commandment, how breaking the seventh commandment is and can be forgiven. Let's turn your Bibles to 1 John. Keep moving forward. 1 John, page 1021. 1 John, chapter 1. Two verses here. For, for many of you, this will be a very familiar passage. But I, I don't want you to just see it again. I want this to be written on your eyeballs. 1 John chapter 8 and 9. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Note the smallest word in this verse might actually be the most important one. All. If you confess your sexual sins before the Lord of glory, He promises that He will faithfully and justly forgive you of that sin. And cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. So, the next time, dear Christian, the world, the flesh, or the devil seeks to breathe life into the dragon of shame over your sexual sin, I want you to quote and proclaim this truth from 1 John 1.9. By your Savior's death and resurrection, you have been cleansed of all your unrighteousness. All of it. Every sin. Every stain from sin. Every feeling of guilt or shame attached to your sin. You have been made No matter what sexual impropriety you have committed, no matter how wicked or shameful it is, lay it at the feet of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You carry it no more. It is forgiven. You are clean. Guilt and shame is gone. But how? We just looked at the seventh commandment. It's adultery. And adultery carries the death penalty. 
How could God be just in doing this? Pardoning people deserving of death is not just. That's the opposite of justice. Well, the answer is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, for adulterers' sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God made His Son to be sin, to forgive sinners of sin. Jesus knew no adultery in his heart. He never took another man's wife. He never lusted after anyone in his heart. He never transgressed the seventh commandment. And when he went to the cross and hung there, he went and God placed on him your adultery. He became an adulterer in your place. And he died the death you deserved for your adultery. He said, it is finished. That was it. The guilt, the penalty is paid. By virtue of Christ's death on the cross, in their place, adulterers and the sexually immoral go free. This is how God can be just and still forgive. Having trusted in Christ, you are cleansed of all your unrighteousness. You see, because God treated his son in the way you deserve to be treated. So that you could be treated in the way that his son deserved to be treated. If you're not a Christian, I hope you've been listening. Your sin has deceived you. You're far worse off than you ever imagined. It isn't just sex. Your idea of what sex is hasn't come from the creator of sex. It doesn't matter what the world thinks, what you do with your body. The world didn't make your body. What matters is what God thinks about what you do with your body. And your sexual sin carries God's judgment. And friend, I would spare you that judgment. Turn from your sin today. Fall at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess it. Turn from it. Trust in him. And what is true of every Christian in this room can be made true of you. You can be forgiven. Cleansed of all of your unrighteousness. Don't leave this place before you do that. Talk with one of the pastors. Actually, talk with anyone who took the Lord's Supper a few minutes ago. Tell them you'd like to have your sins forgiven.
and they'll pray with you and help you. Before we conclude our time together, just have a few more minutes left. I'd like to consider three ways we as God's people, as a church, can keep the seventh commandment. Three ways the seventh commandment is fulfilled in our lives. Because of what Jesus did, now we can keep the seventh commandment. Three ways. Number one, honor marriage. Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all. This is the instruction that is given about marriage, not just to married people, to everyone. You can honor marriage whether you are married or whether you are not married. If you are married, here's how you can honor marriage. You honor marriage by keeping the marriage commitments. Keep the marriage bed undefiled from sexual sin. Keep your covenant commitments to your spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, 3, the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Proverbs chapter 5, drink water from your own cistern. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated always with her love. Which means, husbands, be a one-woman man. And wives, be a one-man woman. That's how married people can honor marriage. Unmarried, non-married people, you can still honor marriage. Pray for the marriages in this church. Support them in any way that you can. Perhaps you could offer to babysit young couples so that they can take a date. Serve in the nursery and pray for the little ones as you're serving them. Serve in Pebbles and Cornerstone Kids. You can offer yourself to help with laundry and dishes for parents with their hands full. Help young families keep a clean and orderly home. Offer encouragement to discourage moms. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Number two. We keep the seventh commandment by preserving sexual purity in our own life. We keep the seventh commandment by preserving sexual purity in our own life. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 to 5. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Like Joseph with Potiphar's wife, flee sexual sin and temptation. Take drastic measures to cleanse your life of this sin and even of the temptations to this sin. Jesus said it. If your right hand causes you to sin, lob it off. He means take even the most drastic measures to remain sexually pure. No pain, no inconvenience is too great to remain sexually pure. Joseph lost his job. He lost his reputation. He lost his freedom fleeing from sexual sin. And I wonder if many of us are willing to suffer even half of that to remain sexually pure. Brother and sister, repent of pornography. Rid it of your life. 
If you are entrapped in this, find one of the pastors and get help. Take whatever measures to be free of this addiction. Pay for a content filter on your smartphone or on your internet at home, or better yet, just cancel the internet altogether. Ephesians 5.3 says sexual immorality should not even be named among God's people. Pornography is adultery. It will destroy you. It will destroy your family. It is not harmless. It is not victimless. Not by far. Number three. And this one may be more important than the other two. Practice. And provide radically honest, grace-filled accountability. Practice and provide radically honest and grace-filled accountability. James 5.16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Church, practice honest, grace-filled accountability with one another. Brothers, be brave. Trust the Lord. Confess your sexual sins with another Christian brother and ask for prayer. Sexual sins thrive in the dark. You've got to bring them out into the light and kill them dead. Sisters, do the same. If you are entertaining fantasies, feeding yourself on movies and shows which fuel discontentment with your romantic life and in your marriage, find a sister. Confess it to her. Ask her for prayer. This lust thrives in the dark. Bring it into the light. Church, when you initiate radically honest, grace-filled accountability, others become more comfortable with sharing their sins with you too, and you get to pray for them. But you need to understand there is no place in this body for shame or condemnation. None. We are a community built on grace. It is my prayer and has been for many years, that the Lord would grant our church a culture that is so saturated with the gospel that any one of us would be willing to risk confessing the worst thing about us with zero fear of condemnation and shame. But a full confidence that when we do, we will not be shamed but we will be prayed for, we'll be loved, we'll be reconciled. God created marriage to be a picture of the gospel. Marriage is precious. And precious things are protected things. So God protected marriage with rules. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed be undefiled. Keep the seventh commandment. Let's pray. Father, we admit to you, we have broken 
the seventh commandment in our thoughts, in our hearts, and with our actions. We stand guilty. And we bring this truth to you because you're the only one who can cleanse us, cleanse us of this guilt and this shame. And so, Father, will you look to Jesus, your Son, who is our Savior. Look to his death on the cross in our place. Look to his sinless life. And by your grace and through the agency of faith, forgive us and cleanse us of this unrighteousness. Create in us a clean heart. And take not your Holy Spirit from us. Give us pure hearts to see God. Father, bless the marriages of this church. Make them clear presentations of your glorious gospel. And please, hear our prayers. And grant this church a culture that is gospel-saturated and infused with grace. That the members of this church can walk out James 5.16 without the fear of condemnation. Do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I would like to read 1 John as if it were true of you, because it is. When you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness.